How do our earthly fathers and the relationship we have with them affect our relationship with our Heavenly Father? Join us today as we discuss that question with Dr. Paul Witz, Senior Scholar at the Institute for Psychological Sciences and author of Faith of the Fatherless, The Psychology of Atheism. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the faith of the fatherless, uh, the psychology of atheism. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. I'm joined here in the studio by our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization, and our special guest today, Dr. Paul Witz. Uh, you've got your undergraduate in psychology from the University of Michigan, uh, PhD in psychology from Stanford. Uh, you've taught psychology at the New York University, uh, and you're currently a senior scholar at the Institute for Psychological Sciences for an, a number of years now. Right. Uh, author of many books and articles, including kind of the topic of our show today, Faith of the Fatherless, The Psychology of Atheism. You're married uh, and have uh, six children? Is six, that right? yes, uh, and 17 grandchildren. 17 oh. grandchildren, very impressive. Uh, yes. Well, thank you for being on the program well. today. Great to be here. <laughs> well, um, how prevalent, since we're talking about atheism, how prevalent is atheism, those who don't believe in God, uh, in American culture today? Well, it's actually moderately uh, common and perhaps even growing would be my uh, guess on it. Okay. Um, I haven't seen actual statistics on you know a random sample and how right. many, right. but um, uh, I'd say it's becoming uh, something of a, a modest movement. Mm. And, and is this more of a modern, or is this kind of a, always been around? I think what we're seeing today is uh, somewhat new, actually. Uh, there's been, you know, uh, uh, atheism in the culture and among certain people for a long time. Sure. Let's say for a couple hundred years or so, it's been pretty common in the West in certain strata. But now it's much more common in the uh, culture at yeah. large. It, it used to be that everybody had a village atheist, but now the atheist is running the village. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, something like that. The psalmist speaks of the fool who <laughs> says in his heart there is no God. But that level of folly, I, I think, has become endemic to the culture. Yes. I think what you say is true, but possibly understated. You know, I, I think back to my own undergraduate studies in philosophy in the 70s when Anthony Flew was the voice of the atheist, and a very intelligent voice, although, you know, in the last 15 years or so before he died, he came around to a kind of Aristotelian theism. Right. But in the last 15 years, I think we've seen something uh, new and aggressive, you know, with Dawkins and the God delusion. I think you could almost consult epidemiologists and recognize that atheism is an epidemic. I mean, especially mm -hmm. among the young in general and former fundamentalists in particular. Everywhere I go, I meet parents who raise their kids Baptist, who raise their kids fundamentalist, and those kids are now virulent, intelligent, articulate, and aggressive atheists. 
Yeah, and yeah. I tell you, it, it, it's something that nobody saw coming, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so I would say your work is important now in a way that nobody foresaw 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I mean, n not only has it become more aggressive, more yes. pronounced, more strident, but it has become more fashionable, yeah. more respectable. That's right. I mean, if you announce yourself as an atheist, uh, uh, you're not saying anything uh, unseemly. I mean, people look up to you. Uh, you're a clear thinker. Uh, you've decided to take a stand against God, who's dead, by the way, or at least yeah. missing an actor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. heroic. Yeah. Yeah. Academics who believe in God have changed places in the closet with the atheists <laughs> who come out. Yes, I think you're right about the academics in the closet who are believers. That, yeah. that, that I would say, yes. And, and so if you, if you look back, I mean, just to do a contrast, what, what did it look like even in the beginning of our country? You know, we, we, we haven't always had this. This is a modern phenomenon, but I mean, today, for, for, for somebody watching the program, it is, it is commonplace to have atheism on the media, in, in our leadership, and in everything we see and, and read and, and find out there, but this wasn't always the case, right? I mean... Definitely not. We were uh, a very religious country for when we were founded. Yeah. Um, we were so religious that when somebody like de Tocqueville came over here and started talking about American democracy and his famous works, he mentioned that as one of the foundational characteristics mm -hmm. of America and that in the United States being religious was in no way associated with, uh, oh, you know, the old aristocracy and its culture or anything right. like that. Here it was just yeah. uh, assumed. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as recently as um, recently, anyway, as 1890s, 1896 about, uh, there was a Supreme Court case in which uh, the issue of um, polygamy came up <coughs> with respect to the Mormons. And in the uh, rejection of polygamy by the Supreme Court in, I think it was about 1896, uh, they said, uh, among other things, one of their reasons for rejecting it was, we are a Christian nation. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a direct quote. Yes. You know, I think we have to step back, and at the risk of embarrassing you, I, I would say this: that though our country was religious, you weren't growing up, correct? <laughs> no, I wasn't. You know, and, <laughs> no, and, and I wasn't. You've been studying atheism no. now for a long time, and you know, I, I I realize that you've been studying that particular phenomenon, but a lot of people like me have been studying your work for decades, because the work that you did going back to Freud, in psychology, and you know. It was, I found, very illuminating when it comes to, you know, the, the relationship between God and fatherhood yes. in our own experience growing up. And, I, you know, I, back in the 70s, one of my professors, R.C. Sproul, wrote a book called The Psychology of Atheism. And it was a philosophical, theological examination, whereas your book is subtitled The Psychology of Atheism. Yes. But you're looking at the faithlessness of those who are fatherless. Right. And, and identifying this as the substratum. And it's more than just a, a sociological phenomenon. It's more than just a psychological factor. It's an all-pervasive feature that has gone largely unrecognized. And I just, I don't, at the risk of embarrassing you, I want to underscore the value and importance of this because I think this is the front door into the real heart of the matter. Yeah. I think so too. And we've, we've essentially obliterated a positive concept of fatherhood in our society. Exactly. And there are many reasons for this. There are many different factors behind it. But uh, that's the foundational thing. And sometimes it's very particular in the life of an individual, and that's why I talk about many atheists as having had right. no fathers or bad fathers, right. dysfunctional fathers. Yeah. 
But the culture at, at large doesn't want to, um, really doesn't want to give fatherhood a, um, uh, an emphasis. <coughs> Somehow or other, it's threatening to them. Right. Well, your, your narrative is really quite fascinating, and at the heart of it, you have this correlation that I think you've very carefully, meticulously drawn between the tendency to uh, say no to God uh, because uh, your experience of dad yes. uh, was a series of no's. You reject him, and therefore you reject God as father. Right. And, and it's not accidental. I mean, you make the case that it's pretty essential, uh, constitutive of this phenomenon of a fatherless society. Yes. It, and is that really true? Well, I think in a wide sense, yes. Uh, but psychology eventually has to boil down to lots of case histories. Yeah. Yep. You know, it can, and, right. and when you do that, uh, things get much more varied and more complicated. Yeah. But you're right about the cultural um, issues, about the whole understanding of society and so on. But, um, and by the way, I think men have been pretty much in the avant-garde of abandoning fatherhood. Mm -hmm. And I think they've done this, uh, perhaps inadvertently, but significantly because of their, uh, of what I would call the sexual revolution. Yeah. Mm. The whole emphasis on sex is not sex as, as anything but, you know, entertainment. I mean, it's yeah. not sex with responsibility. Right, right. And what fatherhood is, is sex with responsibility. Right, yeah. right, yeah. And that's what we've, we've jettisoned when we make sex into something that, you know, you just you know, when I came do the, for fun. When I was coming into the church, I remember reading books in my own time, you know, the sex drive was the, the phrase back in the 70s yeah. and 80s. But in looking at manuals of moral theology written by Catholic theologians back in the 20s and 30s, they didn't use that phrase sex drive ever. What they had was a parental drive, a paternal yeah. or a parental desire. Yeah. That was the phraseology. And I thought, well, that's subtle, but I mean, that is substantial yeah. to you reduce bet. it down to sex and pleasure or to see it as paternity and parentage. I mean, yeah. it was a sea change of seismic proportions that went largely unnoticed. Right. I agree with that completely. And it went unnoticed because right. the, uh, the idol of sexuality was held in front right. of men. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they're now focused on porn and all kinds of things well, it, it, like that it's, it's of a it. piece <laughs> with a, a more general flight from authority, from yes. standards, right. structures yes. uh, that are sort of unalterable. The nature of man, the constitution of being, people are rejecting that and in their revolt from that, they seize upon sex as a weapon with which to strike God, to hit back at and, their and parents. And to hit back at paternity you, you so oppressed us yes. when we and, wanted to be free. And so when we're, when we're talking about all this, I mean, the name that clearly comes to mind for me is Sigmund Freud. Uh, you know, when we're talking about all of this, right? I mean, so, so yeah. we have some, some major problems with, uh, with Freud. Uh, kind of unpack that in light of uh, what you're talking about with atheism in, in his approach. Is there, is there something that we can learn or benefit from? And what are some of our major problems with Freud in this, in relationship with that? Yes, well look, Freud um, is best known and correctly for having placed a great emphasis on sexuality. Yeah. And by the way, he's the only theory of personality in psychology, the only theorist, his theory, and he's the only theorist who emphasized sexuality at all. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Carl Jung didn't, 
Alfred Adler didn't, all the others didn't talk about sex, but for Freud, as people have pointed out, for Freud, sex was the key. Uh And Freud also, um, in a way, rejected and didn't respect his father. And so there, the the two two separate for him. Uh, His father, um, uh, he didn't respect his father for various reasons. And Freud himself said, I think I'm quoting it pretty correctly, he said, nothing is more common than for a young person to lose their faith in God when they lose respect for their father. Mm. Now, I took that myself and tried to unpack it in my work because there's nothing in there about God being a projection of anything or none of his theory is there, but he had that personal insight. And of course, in his own writings, he referred to his father uh, twice, now that we have the original letters, as a sexual pervert. Wow, wow. So he he even modeled uh, for you uh, what you found. Yes. Now, you're not a dabbler in Freudian psychology, right? (laughs) I mean, explain what your background is just briefly so we can Well, I've read a good deal of Freud. (laughs) You know, I have to admit to that. (laughs) And a lot of uh, biographical material, too. But um, my background, I was trained... in, in graduate stu- school as a, I guess you would call, say as a cognitive psychologist, an experimental uh-huh. cognitive psychologist. And then um, when I was hired at NYU, that, you know, that's the kind of work I did. Which is what, behavioral or what? Well, I built, uh, I made models, mathematical, okay. quantitative sure. models of human learning, human uh, perception, things of that kind. It, it sounds pretty boring. <laughs> oh, no, I know to you it does. To me, I still look back at what I had uh, let go, and I, well, I when did long you, for it. When did you stumble upon Freud? I know you resisted making him your patron saint, but, but, but he yeah, was no. a presence. Right. right? Uh, by the way, if there's a patron saint now for, for what I'm doing, which uh-huh. is now developing a, a Catholic and Christian understanding of psychology for psychotherapy, if we have a patron saint, it would be um, John the Baptist. Hmm. How so? Yes. It means that the new psychology should make straight the way for the Lord. Oh. Wow. Our wow. job is to get people out of the prisons that their own defense mechanisms, that their own denials, that their own psychology has put them in. Yeah. And when, they're, when the pl- road is a little bit more free, and they have more free will. They always have free will, but they'll have more. When they have that, then our job is is done. So you're really about truth. Sure. Business of truth and clarifying people's The best of psychology really always is. Right. Even Freud struggled with it. He he came up with a lot of partial truths or untruths along the way, but you know, well, Came Augustine was some good be another patron yeah, saint right. then, St. Augustine. I mean, the Confessions, that, that's a kind of psychological work. Oh, that's, that's a wonderful psychological self, work, yes, relation it is. relation to God. It's the yeah. first real uh, autobiography yeah. in, in, in the world, I think. Yeah, someone, someone said uh, of your work that, that it's like a, uh, you, you did a, a psychological jiu-jitsu, an academic jiu-jitsu <laughs> on them, where you used the, 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 the true Freudian attempts on understanding sex and the drive, but they, they, he's missing so many parts of this. But even with like attachment theory and so many other right. parts of psychology, you're using what often atheists use against those who believe and actually using it to show this is actually, you're, you're displaying for us why. Yeah, you're projecting. 
as we psychologists <laughs> right. would say, you know, you say that. And, and you know what's really interesting is the number of atheists that I've found who say, my atheism is not the result of rational thinking. Right. I don't want the world to be that way. Right, I yeah, see. Yeah, That's what yeah, they say. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's an emotional thing. It's a yeah. personal thing. It has nothing to do with reason for right. Nietzsche or for many other atheists. Yeah. Oh, that is awesome. I want to pick this up on the other side. Stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. The very things that can push someone away from God can send someone running into God's arms. For example, even in infancy, what the developmental psychologist Erickson called the stage of trust versus mistrust, if the relationship with the mother or primary caregiver does not engender a sense of trust and hope, that could uh, be the basis for relationship problems uh, of all sorts, including relationship with God later on. Not having a father can affect a child's social, emotional, and moral development. But if a child's father is not physically present or emotionally present to them, it doesn't mean that they're doomed to an unhappy life. Be honest with your child. And at the same time, help your child to understand that their self-worth is not solely reliant on their father's involvement in their life. Study online, on campus, or both in graduate programs for working adults at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Advance your career with the ethical approach to management you'll find in our MBA. Bring online learning to life through our Master's in Education. Prepare for advanced practice nursing with our Master's in Nursing. Check franciscan.edu or call 800-783-6220. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about faith of the fatherless, uh, the psychology of atheism uh, with Dr. Paul Witz. Um, uh, Paul, we, we ended last session with, with a quote uh, that, that kind of was an honest uh, atheist that, that, that really brings some real truth to light. It was Nagel, right? Yes, Thomas uh, Nagel. Yes, he's a, a very prominent philosopher. Okay, and, and so his, his understanding, just to kind of rephrase that again okay, for us. Well, he, 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 said he knows people who are believers, who are very intelligent and, and uh, impressive, but he, he doesn't like the fact that they are believers. And he said the simple fact of the matter is for him, uh, he doesn't want there to be a God. He doesn't want the universe to be that way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there was a very honest, frank statement of right. something right. that right. tells you that a great deal of atheism is based upon something besides reason and right. evidence. Right. Right. It, right. it has to do with something about what people want in some way, right. what appeals to their heart, right. Right. rather than anything to do with what's going on up that, here that in the is, cortex. That's uh, terribly important. I mean, it, it's not as if they're, they've come back fresh 
from the stacks in the library. Right. They've exhausted the <laughs> question. Yeah, no, that's right. Plumb there is the no depths. God. I just can't find him. But yes. I've done all my best, bent every effort of mine you know, and it to locate him. It confirms the testimony of St. Paul in Romans 1, who attributes atheism not to the lack of evidence in the world, but to the lack of will in the human heart. Absolutely. Because of how unsettling it is to recognize if there is a God, then I can't be that, you know? And yeah. you know, so much of what he is tracing there has to do with the pride, which is, of course, not a problem for intellectuals or academics, because in the academy, there's very little intellectual pride. Wait a minute. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is that, such that, an occupational hazard. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I was uh, listening to uh, NPR a, a while ago, and they were interviewing Father James Martin, a, a Jesuit priest, sure. and he said, I've got, I've got the good news, and I've got the best news. The good news is there's a God, but the best news is he's not me. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, the atheist cannot abide uh, two gods, so the real God has to be dethroned, right. displaced, because there's got to be room only for me. So it is a function of the will, the crisis of atheism. We locate it in the heart, in the right. will. In fact, I would argue that the growth of atheism today is part of the narcissism endemic to our culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. That is, the narcissist is a person who can't get outside of their own understanding and their own right. concerns for what they need. Yeah. Yeah. They can't give of themselves well to others. Yeah. They can't, they're not involved normally in, right. in uh, loving relationships, in altruistic activities and so on. They're focused almost entirely on themselves. They're incapable of love because they're the center of their own shrinking universe. That's, That's right. with real narcissists. This yeah. is not true, of course, of all atheists. That's right. Know, I don't want to make that no, the narcissist syndrome. But the narcissist, yes. Yeah. And so when, when the, kind of the crux of your book, the faith of the fatherless, you know, uh, you use a term, the, the, the dead father syndrome. Yes. Um, and, and what relationship does this have uh, to people's belief in a God? Well, in the case of Nietzsche, for example, his father was dead. And basically when he said God is dead, he was oh. really saying, my dad is dead. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and he had loved his father. He, his father died when Nietzsche was about four, maybe a little over, and they had a close relationship, which was rather unusual for a young boy. Yeah in the German culture of that mm -hmm. time, but he did. But his father died of a, of a disease, um, probably some kind of, um, well, they're not quite sure, they called it softening of the brain, uh -huh. whatever that meant in mm. the, roughly in the 1870s or 80s, I don't know when, no, maybe 1860s. That would describe a lot of academics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, softening of the brain. Public oh, no, no. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know, I, I'll, I'll pass on that one. <laughs> uh, um, I'd like to think so, but I, I hope it isn't an expression of But But my in your book, preference. you describe little Nietzsche, this four-year-old yeah. child, uh, uh, as gripping the hand of his mother at the funeral. Yes. yes. So that event must have really traumatized. Oh, it did. Yeah. And many of his biographers have pointed out that Freud, that, excuse me, Nietzsche never got over the death of his father, right. and that in many ways his search for a father was expressed in his 
idealization of the Superman, Ibermensch. Right. You know, that was a kind yes. of idealized father that he created, and he talked about himself in all these right. militant, strong terms, and he was trying to find something to fill that vacuum right. that was left by his weakening and dying father. Right. And he, therefore, the pale Galilean that yes. Nietzsche would refer to was really his own pale father, who was a minister, by the way, a, right. a, a, right. a minister in, in the Protestant yeah. church. And so, so we have Nietzsche, you talked about Freud earlier, uh, the dead father. What about like a, just a, a weak or abusive father? Does that have any? Oh, sure. <laughs> that has a lot of problems, abusive fathers. Uh, uh, well, I don't know if people remember H.G. Wells, oh, but yeah. you know, he had a very uh, negative and abusive father. Well, uh, other abusive fathers, oh, they're playing, well, you know, Thomas Hobbes, yes. famous, probably one of the very first materialist atheists, but he didn't quite come out and say it. Right, because but everybody it was, who read him knew. Knew, yeah. everyone who read him knew because it was dangerous politically for him to be an atheist then. Right, right, yeah. And, uh, but his father was a, a, an Anglican uh, uh, priest, minister, yeah. and, uh, but was, not very respected because his father um, would fall asleep in his own services. <laughs> he put himself to sleep. I guess. <laughs> well, I know. He, I don't think. Well, it was. It was when other people were doing things. But and then when uh, young Hobbes was uh, between two and three, his father had a fight with a parishioner in front of the church and knocked him down and beat him up. That, that is the parishioner. And then he fled. Right. Wow. And he abandoned the family and was never seen again, although the rumor was that he had taken up with another woman uh, on, a, you know, on, on the outskirts of London in a different direction. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it wasn't as though he had died. Yeah. Mm. So here's Hobbes growing up with a father who's rejected the family sure. and was a, and, and it's very clear that although Hobbes was almost certainly as a materialist and atheist, yeah. And he didn't say it. He was clearly anti-clerical, right? Mm. Yep. And you know, it's a, it's a no-brainer. Why? Right. Wow. Right. Yeah. I, I also read, not not in your book, that when when Hobbes was in utero, uh, his mother somehow witnessed the the shelling of the Spanish Armada, uh, and that the convulsions uh, from that event sort of shook. Uh, young Thomas's uh, world, his foundations, so that right from the beginning there's this streak of instability running through his character. Yeah. It would account for the Leviathan, uh, uh, for a number of his uh, his pronouncements. It could be. I, 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 <laughs> I, I pass. Things. You know yeah. more. Uh, <laughs> You're not going to venture. Regis, you know more about world. Hobbes than I do. <laughs> well, one of the things I think we're noticing is that atheism, though it has become an epidemic in the last 10 or 15 years, is really rooted in centuries of development, right. of, of yes. things that have happened, you know. And you talked earlier, Regis, in the, in the first segment about a revolt against authority. You know, and I think of the paterphobia that was sort of in the, in, the, in the water supply practically at the time of the French Revolution. You know, monarchy and the episcopacy and any father figures. Yeah, the sort slaying of, of the fathers. Yeah, and, and when you look at the, the, the battle cry of liberty, fraternity, and equality, I mean, how innocuous is that until you recognize that liberty is really 
a negation of authority, yeah. fraternity is a negation of paternity, and equality is a negation of hierarchy. Yeah. These are not yeah. primarily positive right. statements, right. but negations yeah. of the very things yeah. that they are warring yeah. against, yeah. Yes. you know. And this is why I think it's so important to recognize that the family is not just the father, but as the father goes, so goes the family. That's so right. we can glamorize single parenting. And I, I know a lot of people who tragically find themselves in those difficult circumstances, and God bless them. Right. But you know, it goes back before the 70s when Archie Bunker was a kind of caricature of fatherhood. Yeah. This goes back centuries, and we're gonna, it's going to take a long time to kind of understand this and rehabilitate it as best as we can, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if, uh, look, that's here, here. You know, that's right. great. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's the historical context. We've got psychology that's pointing to this, that, that, that the, the, either the abusive, the dead, the not present uh, father yeah. has a huge, huge impact. impact yes. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and does, uh, do you know if there's any impact, I'm just thinking for the church, like in regards to the priesthood? I don't know if you're familiar with any, any look at any of the vocational... Uh, I don't know of, of that. I do know occasionally, I know of a psychiatrist who has done a fair amount of work with priests on, with psychological issues and has found uh, maybe two or three cases of, um, of priests who you know, loved God, accepted God, but hated the Pope. Oh, and in those cases he found that the, the, the priest had come in to the faith a, a lot through the mother and uh, through other help from other people, but had, uh, I think in all these cases, they were Irish and they had an alcoholic, abusive father. Right. And so right. what they were doing is shifting the hostility toward God as Father, right. and they had overcome that, but mm. they shifted it to the Pope, yeah. who is Papa. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we get you know, different kinds of this. We get shades of it and, and other expressions uh, of this, and uh, so it's always very complicated in, an, right. in a particular situation as to how it works out. Yeah, I know. I mean, we can analyze this for eternity, I'm right. quite sure, but I think we have to recognize eventually that the best defense is a good offense. I mean, to raise yeah. a healthy family is to me the greatest need today, more than publishing this book or that article or anything, any, any committee project, you know? Yes, uh, more than making a million dollars, all of that kind of stuff. I'm telling it, you know, the highest form of manhood is fatherhood. Mm. Yeah. And you don't have to be a natural father, but you have to father the people that God has put in your life. Yeah. And an analogous to that is the highest form of womanhood is motherhood. Right, that's right. And all women are called to be mothers, although not necessarily natural mothers. Uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta right. didn't have any children, you know, that's in right. the ordinary that's sense, but right. lots of others. Yep. And it's in that, and, and men have, to, women understand that about uh, life, I think, much better than men. And men have to recover the notion right. that manhood doesn't stop with James Bond, right. where all you do is kill an enemy and sleep with the female Russian spy, yeah. and then wake up at age 40 or 50 and your life's a big zilch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't think the average father realizes the impact. Uh, I still, you know, don't yeah. fully appreciate the impact that we can have on our children and really ultimately then the culture. Because if, we're, yeah. if, you're, if your premise is correct, which I, I know you are, is that the more that we remove fathers, the more that they are abusive and not taking on their full role, we're damaging the whole of society and generations yeah. potentially. To come. Right, and we're setting ourselves up 
for a cultural father figure who will be a demagogue. Yeah. An antichrist. Yeah. We're setting ourselves yeah. up for somebody who will fill that vacuum right. in ways that are going to be um, very unfortunate. Yeah. Well, I, I want to talk more on how we can look at the positive side of what we're looking at now. Stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. One of the things that makes a really good parent is a parent who is what we call child-centered. And a parent who is child-centered tries to help um, address their child's needs in a way that meets the developmental needs of their children. And unfortunately, if a parent um, is too focused on himself or on herself, it can be really difficult to actually uh, be available to your child in the way that they need. And that means the kind of love that they might need, the kind of discipline that they might need, or the kind of learning experiences that actually fit their level rather than a parent's level. My name is Kelly Butler and I'm a communication arts major. I took independent digital filmmaking. Definitely intense. Many all-nighters in the editing lab getting things done. Pope John Paul II has a quote, do not be afraid to go out into the streets and into public places to preach Christ like the first apostles. That's what we're called to as Catholics and as Christians. You have that responsibility that every work you create should reflect Christ. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this entire program uh, springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University. Uh, the program is being recorded right now in our communication arts studio here at Franciscan University. Uh, the cameras and the equipment are being operated by our students. Um, our panelists, our, our members are our theology faculty here. Uh, we've been talking to Dr. Paul Witz, uh, author and professor, uh, about faith of the fatherless, the psychology of atheism. So we've kind of unpacked a lot about atheism and the influences fathers had in their lives. Uh, let's talk about theists, people who are believers, and, and maybe the, is there a difference in the, the relationships or the fathers of some of the theists and those of the atheists? Yes, now we're talking again about on average, you yes, know, there's yes. no life being filled with exceptions, but this is the average um, tendency. And uh, in the book I have a bunch of um, historically famous atheists, but I also match them against historically prominent theists mm. in the same cultures and time periods. And um, there I didn't find any of these defective fathers. Interesting. I found good fathers or good father substitutes. So it could be either or. Yes, and it, that's something to keep yeah. in mind about father substitutes in view of uh, uh, the problem with bad one, bad fathers. But uh, oh, you know, Cardinal Newman had a strong positive relationship with his father. G.K. Chesterton sure. did. Mm. You know, uh, I don't know how many of you know. You know, Thomas Reed, a famous uh, philosopher, had a very fine relationship with his father. Bishop Butler did. Um, uh, 
uh, people like um, uh, uh, we have in there also uh, all kinds of others. Who would we know that was a famous theist? Well, Bon Bonhoeffer. We yeah, put yeah, in there. Yeah, we yeah. could put in Buber. We yeah. could put in um, many others. Yes. Uh, in other words, I had a. You, you could put Carol Vatiwa in there as well. His yeah. own father. Oh, yes. That, I mean, that was a school of sanctity that uh, that he uh, was uh, a student of when he mm. was growing up, witnessing his father on his knees late at night, right. and and after his his mother's death, the father was, was the centerpiece yes. of his family. Yeah. So yeah. humanly responsible, I think, for the vocation that he had. Yeah. Right, one yeah. famous example, of course, is Blaise Pascal, yeah. mm. whose mother died when he was three, but his father home, you know, what, what he did, the father did, he homeschooled right. him. Now, this right. is back right. in the... So it was pro-homeschooling back then. Yeah. Way back then. That's yeah. all they had in That's many right. cases yeah. anyway, and he was homeschooled diligently by right. his father, right. yeah. along with his sister, and, you know, he... It helps to be a genius, though. I mean, that's oh, well, yeah. well, you know, <laughs> I'm encouraged because here in the studio, we have two men with 10 kids each. You <laughs> yeah. and I, Paul, have six kids each. Right. You know, that's right. And I, I'd like to think that I have a decent relationship <laughs> with our six kids as well. But I, I just try to remember this, their names. You know, <laughs> nothing has been more frustrating at times for me than fatherhood. And yet nothing comes close to how fulfilling it has been mm. for 31 years as well. And I think I'm, I'm not an exception. I think that's generally true for every man I know who always feels inadequacies when he's trying yes. to father his kids at every stage. You never yes. stop fathering. And yet God always seems to kind of make up for what we lack when that's we turn right. to him in prayer right. to be the perfect father that he alone can be. That, that's the... That's the that's our fail-safe program. Yeah. <laughs> we can call on God because, uh, you know, I, I was fairly clueless about being a father. Um, uh, we all were. Yeah. Well, I mean, coming out of the 60s, being, I was, you know, at the time. That's right, you were an atheist. I was an right, atheist, yeah. and, you know, I was interested in my career and, uh, you know, that type of thing. Um, I worshipped myself. But, you know, anybody who worships themselves worships a fool. Uh, <laughs> I think that's scriptural. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but it's just true. Anyway. Well, it's anyway. a pretty limited engagement. I mean, how many it, acts can follow from that? Yes. Yeah. You know, Self-centered you know, yeah, self. But it's the easy, you know, I think, I think uh, C.S. Lewis said something to the effect that the, that the most effective alternative religion to Christianity was um, uh, self-focused religion, yeah. uh, uh, focus on yourself. Right. Mm. But fatherhood is precisely what brings about an exodus from those self-worshipping wretches, you know? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and it's painful. That's it why men yeah. are a little leery of it, right. because, right. you know, it. look, we know motherhood involves sacrifice. Yeah. Everybody knows that, starting maybe with morning sickness or, Everything. or you know, whatever, and of course, uh, labor and stretch marks and being right. awakened at night and all of that. But that's why mothers are loved and honored. That's yes. right. And that's why this is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, there's no manhood worthy of the name without sacrifice. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, the military still understands this a little bit. You know, the, right. the, the brave men who died for their comrades and in the, and in the service of the, of the military action yeah. are honored with high medals and with great yeah. respect. And the country also celebrates great memorial, memorial. Yeah. Yes. and all yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the, 
ordinary way a man is called to sacrifice is yeah. to sacrifice for the people he loves. Mm -hmm. Isn't going to be a band of brothers over there in Normandy. Right. It's going to be the band of his family right here in uh, you know uh, Middletown, uh, USA, yeah. and. That's where he has to show this sacrifice, right. self-giving sacrifice. Yeah. How, how does that, what does that look like? I mean, because, you know, some people put up an ideal that seems so far to reach of what the perfect father is. As, as Scott said earlier, so many fathers, I think, feel like there's, there's times where they are not adequate enough for the task. But what, what would be, from, from your kind of study and your look, would be some of the qualities we'd really want to look for or things that they'd want to do. I mean, sacrifice is probably the, the crux of it, maybe, but uh, what would you say about... Uh, well, I'd say first, don't worry about the times you feel inadequate. Right. Mm. Right. You're going to feel inadequate. Yeah. We all feel inadequate about almost any important thing we do <laughs> yes. at various times. We feel that way. But here. not to worry. Not, not to, to give worry. anxiety. Yeah. Yes. All right, you, got, you feel inadequate. You made a mistake. Get you away. don't know what to do. <laughs> get up and get on with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's... You know, that's what your, your wife is probably doing as a mother when yeah. she makes mistakes too. So, what does it mean? First of all, it means being there. Yeah. Men don't Present. understand Show how up. important being there is. It's not not doing something, it's being there. Right, yeah. Um, second, love your, your wife. Yeah. Love their mother. Show respect for her because that's the beginning of seeing respect for women in general, with your sons in particular, and it is the feeling of unity between you and your wife that gives the family a sense of a feeling of unity itself. Right, right. Yeah. So, third, show affection to your children. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of evidence that the that the love and support that children give their parents, that the masculinity of the boy and things of that kind are related not to whether the father's a big macho or something like that, but is highly related to whether the father showed the boy or the, the girl yeah. affection. Yeah. Yeah. The so femininity of the daughters, too, is affirmed by that kind of physical exactly. affection and right. affirmation. And if when they're affirmed by their dad, they don't have to run after some 16-year-old boy or 18-year-old boy. He'll show them that they're... They're attractive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that point you made, we got to return to, and that is worry and anxiety, you know, mm -hmm. not to give in to it. God gives us all fathers, I like to say, so that we can come to know who he is, but he gives us all fathers with flaws, so we'll never settle for anything less than God. But when we come to face our own flaws, you know, I remember coming across a phrase, I don't remember what the source was, that fatherhood is non-anxious leadership. Hmm. If it's just leadership, it can be authoritarian and autocratic. Yeah. If it's simply non-anxious, it can be really absenteeism. Right. But the combination yeah. where you recognize that God is fathering through me, so he'll make up for what I lack. I've got to provide leadership, but it's got to be non-anxious. When I worry, everyone in my family gets stressed out. Right. When I can relax and let God work through me and in spite of me, everybody, you know, my presence then is not a domineering force. No, yeah. you're you know? there, you're there. To help them, that's you're, right. there, you're right. there. To encourage. To encourage. You're there right. to support them. You're yeah. there to give of yourself to them. Yeah, it's yeah. a gift. Yeah. And yeah. of course, you can't do that 
unless you're there, that's the crucial thing, being there. And yeah. not about quality time, it's just being there. <laughs> Maybe you should be there when there's a thunderstorm because oh. they feel safer because <laughs> you're there. And, and you shouldn't be the thunderstorm. Yeah. <laughs> right. yep. I think yeah, it's ironic really that, that men have to dethrone themselves to really find themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that we're launching paths, we're not rocket ships. Yeah. Our kids are the rockets yes. know, that we want to launch. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we, are, and we end up being far more fulfilled in their successes. I remember when my dad was an agnostic and he came to my graduation and I got this award or that. And he teared up, and I'd never seen him tear up in my yeah. whole life. And he's like, I, am fe- I, you know, I succeeded in my business more than I ever expected. But then he said, I am feeling greater satisfaction on this day than in my whole life. And I'm like, that just didn't, didn't make any sense until years later when I became a father. And then I called oh, him up, and I'm like, right. I get it. You know, yeah, I'm you, finally you, beginning you get, to get it. Get it. Yeah. And, di- and, but, and so recognize it is self-giving sacrifice yeah. that this is what fatherhood is. And this is how you get above men who are, who are shall we say, fixated on just sex and violence yeah. as what masculinity is about. Right. 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 Yeah, I, I, I don't want to excuse uh, poor uh, fatherhood, but it does seem to me that women have an edge. They have a natural advantage because uh, they're, they're so constituted that God has placed them closer to the mystery of life uh, than men. They, yeah. they don't have to step out of themselves to be uh, feminine, to be maternal. They're reminded every month of this immense <laughs> yeah. capacity to co-create. <laughs> yes. But, but in, man, in, in men, there's a certain externality That's that right. has to be overcome. Women help us. They, they yeah. civilize the men they marry. But it is sort of unnatural to be a father. You go against the grain of your own selfishness. But Mm. as it comes from an old movie, uh, nature is what we were born, uh, what we were born to rise above. Right, yes. That is, men are called to rise above this nature. And in doing this, they they will be shaping the culture in a way that women won't right, have been. Right, yeah. Yeah. Women are providing the people who can even survive, right. but now the culture has to incorporate this and self-giving fatherhood is the way to move forward right. positively sure. out of the mess we're in. Right. And by the way, I think yeah, you're making powerful. a contribution that in, you know, in psychology, I, because in, in theological studies, I've been focusing on covenant as family and fatherhood yeah. and, and all of this. You know, I remember taking one required psychology course, and we heard all about Freud and the Oedipal complex, you know, and fatherhood. Then we studied Adler, you know, and we saw that sibling relations mattered more for him than for Freud. And then Jung and and the archetypes, and especially the maternal archetypes. And it just struck me that we're fragmenting the family. We got fatherhood here, motherhood there, siblings there, but nobody was attempting a holistic uh, you know, reappropriation of family life. Yeah. It was like looking at all of the breakdown aspects. But this is where I think your work comes in, and other people too at the Institute oh, yeah, there in Virginia. Yeah. And it's a constructive effort that is sorely needed, and it's not coming too soon. <laughs> well, well, anyway, it's really clear that psychology more and more needs synthesis. Right, the yes. analysis is over, right. and we need now to begin to put things together. And there are some good secular psychologists out there doing some stuff too, right. particularly right. the work on the virtues uh, uh, pioneered by um, uh, Seligman, Martin Seligman, and many others now. Uh, that's a psychology doesn't know it, but it's it's in discovering the virtues. And this is something very important for men because men like the challenge of virtues right. and becoming 
strong in the sense of brave and or courageous and becoming just and becoming prudent and wise uh, and becoming temperate. That, that challenge um, is changing psychology from determinism to teleology. It's changing psychology from a Galilean understanding of science to an Aristotelian one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, a, they're that's backing into true. something beautiful. Yes, and they're doing I mean, it. They're the, backing in, and they don't even know where the they're virtue, backing yeah. into. <laughs> and the point is that the virtues are to the soul what muscles are to the body. They make the veer, the man. And you know, to see that right. strength, I think, is really going to be a huge breakthrough of psychology. Right. And that's how, how why to be hopeful. Is this Paul? That's <laughs> <laughs> nearly You're enough. Pretty optimistic. <laughs> uh, I mean, how how widespread is this uh, this this new discovery of virtue? It's pretty widespread. In psychology. It has yet to seep down into things like education or the right. culture, but uh, yeah. it's widespread. Exciting. Oh, that's yeah. exciting. Uh, you won't want to miss our last segment here on Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Jesus is the embodiment of true fatherhood or what the famous uh, developmental psychologist Eric Erickson would have called generativity, which is the expression of the virtue of care in passing on to the next generation life and culture and lasting values. And that's a calling that's open to every man regardless of whether he has biological children. And whenever a man in whatever ways are appropriate to him gives himself to others and for others in a good healthy way, he is fulfilling fatherhood and true manhood. My name is Joseph Frelich. I'm a chemistry major, biology minor here at Franciscan University. I love the atmosphere. It's completely centered around the Catholic faith. When I play soccer, when I'm in classes, everything is, has that same Catholic attitude. Myself and a few other chemistry majors had the opportunity to work with top scientists in order to combat neglected diseases. I was able to connect my love for chemistry and also my love for mission work by synthesizing chemical compounds. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This is our final segment. Uh, we've been talking about faith of the fatherless, the psychology of atheism with Dr. Paul Witz. Uh, Regis, could you start us off? Yeah, I'm, I'm so delighted, uh, uh, Paul, that you came to talk to us. Uh, I, I find uh, your ideas infectious. Uh, Thank you. Really, Thank you. really exhilarating. And, and they sort of uh, go against the grain of my own native pessimism oh. about <laughs> our prospects. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm delighted that you're spearheading this uh, renaissance uh, of uh, genuine recovery in uh, the psychological uh, disciplines. Uh, that's uh, gratifying to see. I'm uh, struck by a couple of distinctions that we didn't really uh, parse uh, right. in, in the conversation. Uh, you were talking about narcissism, uh, and, and you describe it as if it were a malady, a disease, a yeah. disorder. There's something uh, really pathological about it, which suggests that maybe people are helpless to get out of it. And the distinction I, I, would, I would want to draw is between that, the illness, and solipsism, which is a kind of philosophical heresy that declares the self to be the center of the cosmos. What, what Dean Fitch, a wonderful Protestant theologian, described as the odyssey of the self-centered self. <laughs> and, and I'm just wondering if, if the atheists uh, who, who are driven by an ideology of hatred uh, for a God, 
Is it a function of narcissism or, ha or has it somehow hardened uh, into a heresy, uh, a sin, uh, which we call solipsism? And, and the other distinction that, that I would uh, make is between unbelief, which some people have, I just right. can't believe in this stuff, I can't sustain uh, the evidence, and disbelief, which yeah. tends to be more aggressive, right. virulent. That, that prefix, dis, I, I think is, uh, is revelatory because he was the god of the underworld uh, in classical mythology, mm -hmm. and the word means separation, yes. division, negation, yes. uh, suppression. Uh, and that's willful. I mean, that's where atheism, I, I think, begins in the human heart. This, this necessity driven by the will to displace God because there's no room for both of us and I need to be God. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you can address that, maybe in your next book. Yeah, I would just okay. say, I, all, what I can do now is say, yes, here, here, you're, those are fine distinctions yeah. and I would go with them. Uh, in any given case, you'd have to know whether you're talking about unbelief or disbelief yeah. or, or narcissism or right. solipsism. Yeah. And you'd have to ask questions. Yeah. I'd like to point out that uh, a lot of atheists don't fit into either the autistic intensity or the uh, faith of the fatherless intensity, but they're just ordinary uh, atheists who are atheists for convenience because it's uh, uh, you know the better way to get ahead without making uh, offending anybody that they think might right. be an unbeliever or something of that kind, and then there are some people who are atheists because their parents or their fathers were believers, but not dysfunctional, but where their fathers and their family is embarrassing. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, they're my, mortified. They're by mortified it. by their Pentecostal family. They're <laughs> mortified by their a fundamentalist family. They're mortified by this devout Catholic family where their father prayed the rosary. You know, they find all of that humiliating. Humiliating yeah, yeah, yeah. in a social sense. Yeah. Now that they're at the university, now right. that they're in Silicon Valley and with all these fancy they people. They hit a stride, they got to emerge yeah. from all and of so that. So they've got to emerge from this uh, uh, lower class, simple-minded family. And so that's why they're atheists, and they may not be in any way rejecting their father or mother per se, it's just that the whole thing gives them the creeps. Yeah. yeah. Scott, would you like to ask? Yeah, I, I appreciate the way you wrap things up so fairly, because, you know, it, it really helps to recognize that atheism is not a reductionist sort of study. And this is something that you've been doing. And again, I don't want to flatter or embarrass you, but I've been looking at your work now since the late 70s when you came out with a book that was assigned in a course that I had as an undergraduate, Psychology as Religion. You know, and it was really a breakthrough for me to see this kind of cult of self-worship. Mm. You know, I had taken the required psychology course and I could see what it was you were describing. But since that time, you've also done constructive work, such as, you know, Faith of the Fatherless. And, you know, I think the most constructive work all of us are engaged in right now could be summed up in the new evangelization. Yes. Proclaiming Christ, you know, and as Pope Benedict pointed out in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, you can sum up Christianity in one word, and that is Father. Jesus came to show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the more we can draw people closer to Christ, the more they can discover that the source of being, the governor of the universe, the master of the whole world is Abba, Father. And that has to transform us interior and then in all of our relations as well. 
you know, and I think that will provide the counterbalance to that kind of analysis that says, look what happens when you don't raise a good family, yes. when you don't know God as Father. And this is, this is where your work has a huge contribution to make, I'm convinced. Yeah. Well, that you, would, I, I hope so, but you never know. And I would say this in, as a finale, that um, fathers are called, the, the, basic, the basic call of the Father is to love. Yeah. And you don't argue with an atheist. You don't mm-hmm. argue with somebody who doesn't have belief. You show love to them. Yeah. And that's the, the, the fundamental language that can make the difference. And that's the language that all fathers should show to their, to their wife and to their children. Mm. Oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's program, uh, this has just been, there's so much more that we could be unpacking here, uh, but we have a, a free handout for you, uh, Freud and the Psychology of Atheism. It gives a uh, going deeper a little bit into some of the subject we talked about here today, um, available at faithandreason.com or just for asking. Um, when we think about fathers, uh, I, I just want to just briefly touch and say, don't worry. Uh, don't, don't worry about being perfect. Uh, be present. And uh, keep it simple, just show up and, uh, and be present for your children or grandfathers. Or if in your parish or in your community there's a single mom uh, struggling with that, step in. Be the father for her children in a powerful way. There are so many opportunities in this world with so many fatherless out there, walking wounded, and we can be, as, as, as Dr. Vitz said, uh, we can be that loving presence for them. And, and even thinking just about uh, atheists in general, uh, it, it's not always an intellectual discussion or argument that they need, but they need love. And maybe it is many wounds of their fathers or other situations that love is the language that we as, as Christians need to speak in this new evangelization. So go and be present to your family, to those in need, and bring love because that's primarily what our world is longing for, who is uh, Jesus Christ. So thank you for watching today's program. Uh, This is a program that springs forth from Franciscan University's desire uh, to fulfill our mission, which is forming those who will go out to transform the world. And we want to invite you to be a part of that life-saving mission, Uh, possibly by coming here to study here on our campus or through our online or distance education, uh, or maybe joining us at one of our summer conferences or our pilgrimages to holy shrines around the world or be equipped through a new website that we launched, faithandreason.com, where there are videos, articles, uh, insights that will give you the materials and the inspiration you need to be active in the new evangelization. So thank you for watching, and until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.